Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. If you're like me, it's now the end of the day, and you say, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, here's the solution. Eating better is easy with Factors Delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You're going to have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Flexible for your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive then take out, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash smirconish50 and use code smirconish50 because you'll get 50% off. That's code smirconish50 at factormeals.com slash smirconish50. Get your 50% off. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to Book Club with Michael Smirkanish. Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. As a Sirius XM and CNN host, I'm known for speaking, but frankly, I read for a living. I need to know what to say, and so I consume over two dozen newspapers and websites daily. I read opposing views and studies and court cases and orders and op-eds just so I can discuss current events on radio and television. But my favorite reading? Books. Old school. And my favorite interviews? are with book authors. Book Club with Michael Smirconish is now in session. Stephen Levy is totally wired, pun intended. He's the editor of Wired. He is a technology journalist who, he's a Philly guy, but that's not why he's on my radar screen. He's on my radar screen because he has written several books about which I've interviewed him, all concerning technology. One of them was The Perfect Thing. And it was about Apple and Steve Jobs and the iPod. And then he wrote a book called In the Plex, where he had unfettered access to Google. And he wrote all about the Google culture. And now he has just released this week a book called Facebook, The Inside Story. And Stephen Levy was given access multiple times to Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg and and. All of the founders of uh, Facebook, the expats, you know, those who've left and have turned on the company, uh, critics, uh, I mean, you, you name it, anybody with an insight 
into the launch of Facebook and the ramifications for society he included in a book that taps out at 583 pages. So last night he was a guest at the Philadelphia Free Library and from time to time when they have when they've welcomed high profile guests, authors, they have asked me to come in and conduct the live interviews. As I think about this, I've done it for General Michael Hayden I have done it for Police Chief Ray Kelly. I have done it for Secretary John Kerry. I presented my own book, American Life in Columns, Clowns to the Left of Me, Jokers to the Right. Um, and when I was asked by Steve Levy himself, as he's touring the country, he's identifying people like me who are journalists uh, known in a particular community to conduct his interview. And so last night in Philadelphia, I sat down with the author of this Really intriguing, brand new book about Facebook, and you are about to hear that conversation. So I have a leg up on everybody in that the book just dropped yesterday. It's nearly 600 pages, but I read in advance, and it's extraordinary. It's a wonderful read, and what occurred to me as I was reading it, Stephen, is that it needed to be approachable for someone at my level of sophistication, which is down here somewhere, although I'm a Facebook user, but you also needed to have enough substance in it to appeal to people with more technical sophistication. How much of a challenge was it for you to reach both audiences? Um, I'm kind of used to it. I, I, I write about technology, and you have to gear up, even though I'm an English major, uh, to be able to understand these people sometimes. I've, I've sat down with a lot of people who aren't used to talking to journalists. But when I write, I've, I've written for places like Newsweek, which is a really great training for being comprehensible and taking these uh, complicated technical matters and just breaking it down to what matters to civilians. Uh, and in this case, uh, there were a couple times where I felt I really had to... just tiptoe into the weeds a little uh, in order to tell the necessary part of the story, but I tried to keep that to a minimum. So let's get right to it. Zuckerberg says it is not true that he started Facebook to get girls. What did you find? <laughs> well, uh, I asked the go with Zuckerberg on, on this. He had a girlfriend at the time um, who is now his wife. I, I was surprised to learn just how many people were working at the same time on a similar vision, but he beat them. That's right. So social networking uh, began actually you know, a few years before uh, in the 90s from a company that invented it and actually kind of worked out the grammar of social networking. It was, it was called Six Degrees, but it was too early. Uh, you couldn't, for instance, send a picture because you know, we didn't have phones and you couldn't take a picture, and things were very slow on the Internet. So they died, and uh, it wasn't until the early 2000s uh, when Zuckerberg awakened to it that there were companies like Friendster and MySpace that were like, way ahead of him. But he figured out uh, how to get the dials just right and you know, wound up vanquishing uh, the other components, the other I don't, competitors. I don't want to give away too much, but you, you begin by talking about Andrew Weinrich you circle back to him at yeah. the end. Explain who he is. So Andrew Weinrich is the founder of Six Degrees, which was the first social media company. 
And he came across with the idea of making friends with your connections and uh, just a lot of the things that we think are part of social networking today, part of Facebook, really, but MySpace and Friendster use them, too. Um, and he got the patents for them, too, which you know, maybe we could talk about uh, what happened to those. And uh, towards the end of my research, I decided I wanted to visit him again. <laughs> and, uh, Any bitterness on his part? Did he miss well, this? Well, that's what I wanted to find out. I mean, here's a, a guy who's worth $60 billion uh, on his, using his idea. And he professed that, no, I'm not bothered. But on the other hand, when I'd meet with Mark Zuckerberg, we'd be meeting in, you know, like a multi-million dollar office building designed by Frank Gehry with people buzzing around. And I met with Andrew in a WeWork. <laughs> you describe in the book a, quote, large population of unhappy people who got enormously rich off Mark Zuckerberg. I'm not sure if this is one of the unhappy people, but my favorite example of those who made a lot of money because they got caught up in it or played an ancillary role, the graffiti artist. <laughs> yeah, he, he wasn't as grateful as you might think. So he, this is a guy, David Cho, who was a graffiti artist, uh, who they asked to just write in his scrolls or um, some of it was pretty misogynistic, actually, on the walls of the original Facebook office. And um, he thought he'd do it for a, a few hundred dollars. They said, why don't you take some stock? And it became worth $200 million. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I assume that... that he many, wasn't that unhappy. <laughs> I assume that many who are here tonight and many who will read the book have seen the movie Social Network. And I remember being intrigued in social network and, and much more interested because of your level of detail in all of your reportage about what went on in suite H33 at Kirkland House. Among other things, here's what I want to know. Who missed the boat? Who was there at ground zero and today really does regret that they didn't play a role? Well, there was a guy named Joe Green. So there was, uh, Mark was in a suite of four people. Uh, his roommate was a guy named Chris Hughes, who is one of those uh, unhappy people who's worth $500 million, who's now trying to break up Facebook. Um, and Joe was in the room next door. There was a fire exit door uh, between the, the, his suite and Mark's suite that was always open. And you know, uh, Joe helped out with, with a lot of stuff. Um, but uh, Joe's father, uh, was a, also a professor who was visiting, and he didn't like Mark. Um, and at the time that Mark was under uh, investigation by Harvard, you know, he told Joe to stay away from this guy. And as a result, Joe did not become one of the co-founders of Facebook. Facebook was founded in 2004. You first met Mark Zuckerberg at a PC forum in 2006. He was 21 years old. Was there something about him when you first interacted with him that caused Stephen Levy to think this guy is really on the verge of something big? Well, actually, the very first time I met him, I thought this guy is on the verge of being really strange. Uh, <laughs> How come? Uh, you know, I wanted to meet him because his company was taking off. I was writing a cover story 
for Newsweek at the time about something called Web 2.0, which was uh, you know, all these sites that use social connections, um, not like Facebook, but you know, to share things uh, like photos or things like that, like Flickr. And I thought it would be good to meet him. MySpace actually was one of the companies that we included in this. Um, and uh, we arranged a meeting. It was at this conference. So we were going to sit at a big round table uh, during the lunch period. And I asked him a couple of softball questions about uh, how many people were on his uh, platform and uh, stuff like that. And he didn't answer me. He just stared at me. And, you know, it's like time is standing still and he's looking at me. And I'm thinking, this is uh, strange. Did I say something to offend him? Is he going through some sort of episode? And it took a while before him just to get him talking to say the most cursory things about his company. Um, and uh, he's evolved quite a lot as an interviewee since then. In other words, that, that was part of his affect at the time, is that he would take his time and gather his thoughts before he would respond. Yeah, I, I have talked to a number of people who had that similar experience. You know, Don Graham, who was the CEO of the Washington Post at the time, actually my boss at the time, uh, said he had the same experience. Um, and, you know, uh, <clears throat> it is disconcerting. And people wonder sometimes whether it was a, a tactic to throw people off. I'm not quite sure about that, but I think that um, he couldn't have ignored the effect it had on people. You interviewed Mark Zuckerberg seven times. You had a lot of access to, to Facebook at all mm -hmm. levels. Sheryl Sandberg also gave you a lot of time. What was the deal? What was the understanding going into the project? So the deal with them was they would give me access to their executives uh, including Mark and Cheryl. They didn't promise me a set number of interviews, but they said that you'd probably get some. Um, I gave up. There was no string, other, strings otherwise. Uh, I, I didn't have to show them a book in advance. Um, uh, they weren't committed to a, a number of interviews. Um, but the implicit promise, and I think this came because they knew who I was and, and knew my work, and I knew what that they were giving up something to talk to me, was that I'd be fair. What, what do you think Zuckerberg, Sandberg, and others at the highest level of the company will think of the book? I think they'll, I think, they'll think it's tough but fair. I think that um, they won't like some things in it. And actually, they actually gave a statement saying they don't like some things in it, but uh, they didn't say uh, I treated them unfairly. The New York Times online yesterday. I assume it'll be in print tomorrow. I don't think I saw it yesterday, and I know I didn't see it today. It'll be in print one, some Sunday, I mean a couple Sundays from now. Okay. They think you went too light. You were too easy on Facebook. What do you make of that review? What do you want to say to the Times? I, I wonder why um, I've probably gotten, you know, 13 or 14 reviews now, and they were the only place which didn't say uh, I was, I guess, in the words of one reviewer, um, uh, you know, uh, what was it, uh, even-handed and devastating. Um, and, you know, just today I got two reviews, same thing. One even talked about the access issue and said, you know, but his ultimate, you know, conclusion is, you know, uh, extremely tough. And, you know, so that person was an outlier. Um, that's what happens, you know, in, in reviews sometimes. Uh, like this one, you wind up, a person winds up talking about things that you didn't want in, that you didn't put in the book. And sometimes, as in this case, it just happens to be that person's specialty. 
Um, and this person went even farther by saying, gee, I was really unhappy that he didn't write about, like, this thing. And, you know, can she mention something? And then you'd think to it, and, gee, it was an article she wrote. I don't know. <laughs> Chapter 6 of the book, The Book of Change. To me, this was the most revelatory. Quote, I managed to get a 17-page chunk from what might be the most significant of his journals in terms of Facebook's evolution. I know you're not going to answer me, but I have to ask, how did you get it? Where did you get it? So this notebook was kind of legendary. And around that time, weirdly it was around the time that he wasn't saying anything to me at the PC forum, uh, he was keeping a notebook. And he'd scroll on it all the time. People would see it. Someone told me they visited his apartment. They saw all these little stack of notebooks. And uh, he wouldn't show the notebook physically to, to people, but sometimes he would copy some pages. Uh, in this notebook, he would do, like, product designs. He'd sketch out products. And he'd write about his vision for Facebook, what it would be like. And so I figured, well, if he made copies sometimes... To, for people who were designing a product, um, this is what it should look like, or um, saying, here's an idea, maybe we'll start a discussion about this and then take it to the whiteboard. I figured maybe someone kept some of those pages. So every person who I thought might have copies of some of those pages, I would say, yeah, do you think you might have some? And they'd say, oh, I don't know, uh, it might be buried, I'm not sure. I said, well, listen, here's my address. <laughs> If something were to arrive at my home, maybe even without a return address, I wouldn't mind. And is that how you received it? Literally, that's how I received it. Is there any suspicion on your part that maybe the sender was one Mark Zuckerberg? No. <laughs> you do not believe that's a possibility. No, but, but here's the other thing. I had to get it checked to make sure it was genuine. Right. I didn't want to be... I worked for Newsweek that once published the Hitler Diaries, and, which weren't the Hitler Diaries. So, uh, and they thought they vetted that pretty well. So I needed to make sure that it was actually from Mark's hand. So my last interview with him, I told him I have pages from his, his notebooks. Now, these notebooks, we didn't mention, he said that he had destroyed these notebooks at a certain point. And some people told me he destroyed them because of legal reasons. And later he would tell me, actually, I destroyed them because, you know, I was embarrassed by some things that came out uh, when I wrote at Harvard, uh, personal things. And I didn't want that to happen with my notebook. So I, and he asked to see the notebook when I told him about it. And I showed it to him. I had it on my phone. And he went into kind of a rapture, like almost like he was back to those days when he was building a company and p legislators weren't screaming at him. And, you know, he need bodyguards and all that other stuff. Are you convinced he destroyed them? I, I am. You I, are. You, are, you, are you? No, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not convinced he destroyed them. Why not? Um, I'm naturally a cynic, <laughs> and I, I, I can understand why it, it would be so advantageous, given the, you know, the size and the scope of Facebook and the litigation that now mm. surrounds it, to have a very convenient answer of, I don't have them, I destroyed them. Uh, and then when I read the book and I thought, okay, the 17 pages, I mean, these, th just so the audience knows, again, because I've read the book and everybody will now be reading the book, it, it just dropped. I in this particular journal, he talks about open registration and the news feed. And for those who are really tuned in to Facebook, I can't think of two more subjects you'd really want to know about the origin. 
That's right. And it, it was amazing because he was redesigning Facebook uh, in that one journal. And, and that chunk, 17-page chunk, I got that. I also had in that 17 pages were three pages about this thing called Dark Profiles. Uh, it was sort of interesting because Facebook has always insisted that dark profiles don't exist on Facebook. But the one sentence that I found most interesting in the whole chunk was he was talking about opening up Facebook to the world and he worried that there might be privacy issues because people wouldn't be protected by the domain of the college that they were at. Um, and he asked himself a question, how do we make this seem secure even if it isn't? You talk in the book about exchanges, personal exchanges, between Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg and Steve Jobs. And I, I'm really intrigued by that. I think the audience will be intrigued by that. What, what it must have been like to be a fly on the wall for Gates hmm. and Zuckerberg. Will you say a word about those two? So I interviewed uh, Bill about Mark. I actually once was witness to... Uh, a meeting between the two of them. I wrote a story for Wired in 2009 about, uh, it was an update in my book, Hackers, and I interviewed some of the people in the original book and then people who would have been in the book had I written it now, and, which was Mark, and we got together for a cover shoot for Wired. And, you know, uh, they have a lot in common. And Bill told me, he said, yeah, he is kind of a younger version of me in terms that he dropped out of Harvard, um, had this big... Uh, ambitious idea, and he made good on it, but he made sure he told me. He said, but I did more coding. Let him know I said that. <laughs> How about Steve Jobs? Well, the one time I, I heard Steve Jobs mention Mark, um, he uh, talked about, you know, uh, how he admired him as a young entrepreneur. This is in the last years of Steve's life. Uh, uh, I was trying to get him to talk about uh, Facebook, so I was working a story on it. Um, but there were, you know, uh, interesting interactions between them, uh, particularly the time that uh, Facebook wanted to make its own phone. Uh, had that happened, I suspect that uh, the relationship between uh, Mark and Steve Jobs would have just, like, blown up and been very negative. That and, was in the very end of Steve's why, life. And why didn't that happen? You discuss it in the book. Why didn't that come to fruition? I think that was one time where Mark blinked. Um, Facebook had a prototype of the phone. It had an Intel chip in it. Uh, they had a top-notch designer uh, create the hardware. They had uh, prototypes made in China. But it would have took, taken billions of dollars worth of investment and the time Facebook was planning to go public. And I think that was maybe one time, maybe the only time, where he didn't execute on a big, ambitious plan like that. Michael Smirconish. For independent minds. I want to talk politics. Uh, a subject of great fascination for me and I think for the audience given the timing as, as we are here at the uh, if it's Zuckerberg it answer Steve it. Jobs my god <laughs> I wish it were Steve Jobs I wish it were Steve Jobs believe me my god he heard us <laughs> so the conventional wisdom is that Donald Trump in 2016 had this organic slapdash highly dysfunctional campaign, that Hillary was organized, sophisticated, the brightest minds. That was not the case, at least as it related to Facebook. Explain. Facebook you know, uh, offers all candidates a, a platform for political ads. And if you use it a lot, like any advertiser, whether you're Procter & Gamble or a presidential campaign, they all give you expertise 
you know, actual embed some of their people in your campaign to help you use the platform in the most intelligent way, in the most effective way. And the Clinton campaign turned them down. They said, we're not so interested in using this. Uh, we're not going to spend a lot of our resources on Facebook. The Trump campaign, on the other hand, said that we're a Facebook-first campaign. We're going to take every advantage we can on Facebook because we think we're going to get massive bang for our buck. We're going to use a lot of micro-targeting to do things that you couldn't have done before. The last person to go in that direction was Obama, but the Democrats went backward after Obama, um, and the Trump campaign took the next step. You say several Facebookers worked virtually full-time advising Trump campaign on how to maximize their spending. There were none with Clinton. Not because of favoritism being shown, but because this was business. They were a huge advertiser. Right. And there was an interesting dynamic in, with people at Facebook, most of whom were Clinton supporters. So they saw how the Trump campaign was playing Facebook like a Stradivarius. But they thought it was just an interesting phenomenon. And they were, you know, sitting back in admiration. One of them told me that, you know, you know he used the word, I probably don't want to repeat here, but it was something beautiful, you know, the, the way they used it, uh, to sometimes putting up as much as 175 ads a day up there targeted different people. Wait, 175,000. Thousand thousand ads a day. Yeah, yeah. These weren't ads that went to everyone. It was, you know, tailored for each person because they knew the Facebook information on that person, um, you know, because they could access it through Facebook. They didn't get hold of it. Though with Cambridge Analytica, there's something else. But um, then, you know, uh, and they could know if this person is interested in guns, this person is interested in uh, pro-abortion, anti-abortion, and they would try to find something to resonate uh, with that person and Trump and if they found nothing resonated, a person wouldn't interact with the ad, they figured this person is never going to vote for Trump. Let's serve them ads that dissuade them from voting at all. And, and it's, it's not just, in, in, it's not just the, the ads. Let's talk about the news feed. See, I, I think that we're all now at a point where we know. I, I'm in the market for a new car. Okay. I know that when I do some research online. In fact, it even occurs to me, do I want to put this in a Google search? Because if I do, I will be bombarded with ads for cars, right? right? And I think, I think consumers now know you're looking for a chair. Maybe you're thinking of vacation. All of a sudden, they've got your number. But I think that people still don't realize that in the, the news feed, when you click on a story and you express an interest in a particular kind of story, you're now going to be fed a steady diet of similar stories or stories that, that you know, the, the algorithm thinks you're going to enjoy. That's right. Every time you interact with something, Facebook says, oh, this is what you like. Right. And they feed you more of it. Um, and sometimes, even getting away from, from politics for a second, this could be in, in just like really like goofy, stupid stuff. That's why things that are sometimes silly uh, or, you know, heartwarming like a puppy or things like that go really viral on Facebook because you know, if you click on it once, it, you find it populating a lot on your newsfeed, and these items get a lot of clicks and proliferate throughout the whole system. And this is something that Facebook actually encouraged. Uh, uh, they switched their algorithms to have that happen more uh, at a period where Mark Zuckerberg was obsessed with Twitter. And he uh, was worried about the competitive uh, nature of Twitter and wanted to, uh, first he tried to buy it, and then he said, we'll be a little more like Twitter and we'll encourage that kind of going viral that, that, 
that Twitter had. But it sort of changed the character of Facebook from something where you would get information from your friends and people you knew to people outside and allowed this sort of um, uh, uh, proliferation of stuff ranging from heartwarming stuff or silly stuff to fake news. But, uh, you know, on one hand, I view that as an invasion of privacy of sorts, that they have my number. I guess from Facebook's standpoint, they think they're providing good, good service. Yeah, well, you're giving them your number by, by your behavior. And they feel that, hey, you're getting more relevant ads. But the, the fact is, when the information is used not to serve you something that you want to see, like the car you want to buy, but uh, manipulating you and to do something you don't want to do, which is stay home and not vote when actually you would prefer one candidate over the other, then that's not a good thing for people. Let, let me go back to something you, you, you made, a point you made a, a moment ago about voter suppression. So the Trump campaign, I just want to stick with the legitimate ways, the lawful ways in which the Trump campaign was able to utilize Facebook. So they were doing all this micro-targeting through the news feed, and, and if they figured out that you were probably a Hillary household, then what they would do, they wouldn't try and bring you out. They would try and hammer her through their messaging in a way that would keep you from voting, make right. you more disinclined. Yeah, hammer her or just get you disgusted in general. So they would target uh, African-American voters and, and point out things that made them feel more negative about Hillary. And, and all this is Brad Parscale at the Trump campaign working with Facebook representatives. Yeah, it was a relatively obscure at the time, um, you know, uh, digital marketer uh, and website designer. He actually got into the Trump camp by working on Trump's website um, and some of the Trump organization's uh, digital needs. Um, and you know, uh, people thought, wow, this Trump campaign, there's no, they're going to go nowhere. This obscure guy in Texas is working with, with them. But he, you know, broke convention to use Facebook uh, more extensively than it had been used in a campaign before. Okay, now I want to talk about the illegitimate uses of Facebook in the 2016 campaign. I just want to make sure I'm, I'm drawing a fine line between that which was lawful and, and that which was... Sometimes that line has to be pretty fine because, you know, there is, you know, it, sometimes it doesn't seem that different. Uh, well, here's what I'm thinking of. DC leaks. Mm -hmm. DC leaks and the Russian utilization of Facebook for that purpose, is it fair to say that the Russians for DC leaks, and maybe you should explain and remind people what that is, mm -hmm. but that the Russians utilized Facebook exactly as the engineers who set it up designed it? Right. So DC leaks was a page on Facebook that was designed to disseminate the hacked emails of the Democratic National John Committee. Podesta, right. Risotto. Yeah. And you know, it was set up through um, you know, phony accounts. Uh, on, on Facebook. And when Facebook uh, discovered it, at first, you know, they didn't know that the account was set up by a Russian, but they were fine with an account on Facebook meant to disseminate all this, uh, you know, purloined emails. And, you know, later when there was an outcry, they figured, oh, they looked into it and they found it was inauthentic and they took it down. But the real Russian push was through ads that they would take through a number of different pages that uh, would try to make people feel worse about the election. Again, actually doing the same uh, aims as the Pascal you know, operation did. Uh, but they went even farther. In one case, they uh, picked people who were against uh, immigration, and they said they were going to have a rally 
uh, at this town in Texas. And then they would do the same thing to people who, on the other side, you know, uh, pro-immigration people. And they try to make a phony event where two opposing sides would go and fight each other. And that would make people feel worse and just cause general chaos. Let's talk about another component of what went wrong in 2016, fake news. Here's my favorite example from what you published in the book, page 358. The Denver Guardian. First of all, what is the Denver Guardian? Sounds real, doesn't it? Sounds impressive. If you didn't live in Denver, you might think that's the newspaper in Denver. Um, But actually, the address uh, for that paper turned out to be a parking lot. And it was a creation made by someone whose job it is to make up phony publications, take a, a blog post from some obscure right-winger and put it under that name and put it up on Facebook and uh, see, what that, see what comes of that. See so how many here's, an, they can get. here's a headline from the Denver Guardian. FBI agent suspected in Hillary email leaks found dead in apparent murder-suicide. Sounds awfully nefarious. 500,000 shares... The headline was viewed 15 million times. Talk about that. In, in the last weeks of the presidential election, fake news you know, just blossomed and proliferated because people would click on this stuff. And for things like the Denver Guardian, there was a financial component to it in that when you actually clicked on it and went to the page, it would serve you advertisements and the pe- people posting the fake news would get a cut. Um, then, on the other hand, there were the Russians posting as well. And Facebook was, uh, was faced with the decision of what to do about it. People were complaining about it in a way they never were before, even though there was a lot of fake news that happened on Facebook before the election, even things like anti-vax stuff uh, circulating that Facebook also knew about and didn't do much about. And uh, they decided to leave the stuff alone. In other words, they, Facebook, this is a really important part of the book and the discussion. So as all of these nefarious things are taking shape, well, I'll ask the question this way. How much of it was known to Facebook? Facebook knew, knew a lot of it. It was called to their attention, and, and they were able to see what happened. They knew that, that there was no Denver Guardian. How high did it go? Did Zuckerberg know? Did Sheryl Sandberg know? There was a meeting. Um, it was called the Sheryl meeting, a weekly meeting, where uh, Sheryl would meet with her top policy people. It was a conference between uh, Menlo Park, where Facebook headquarters is in Washington. And they talked about the fake news. And the head of the Washington Policy Bureau, um, this guy named Joel Kaplan, uh, argued that we really have to keep this stuff up because we don't want to meddle with the election. And, of course, doing nothing was a form of meddling with the election because they were allowing this fake news to affect people. Well, was the logic the same within Facebook as it was in the Obama administration? And by that I mean that the Obama administration knew during the course of 2016 that the Russians were screwing with the election. But I think it's accurate to say that one of the reasons that they weren't more aggressive is they thought there would be a perception that they were putting their thumb on the side of the scale for Hillary, and therefore they took more of a hands-off approach. Was that the thinking in Menlo Park? It it was what I guess Joel used to convince them to keep hands off at at that point. So you're right. It's a a similar impulse that they didn't want to be accused by the right 
uh, of meddling. And, you know, and Facebook made all kinds of concessions to the right because uh, they got a lot of heat from conservative legislators. At one point, they brought a whole bunch of conservative commentators to Menlo Park to, to meet with Mark and with Cheryl. Um, and, you know, when I asked Mark about this, uh, you know, because they knew that the charges made against them, that they favored uh, liberal content on the newsfeed was false. He knew that, yet he would not say that to them. Um, he bent over backwards uh, to, I, I, I said when I talked about him, I felt he was bending over so backwards in his chair, I thought it would hit the floor uh, because he catered the conservative so much. In, in the case of the Denver Guardian, just to stay with this example still a, moment, Denver. A, a moment longer for, for fake news as an example, this, this emanated from Macedonia. There's right. a small town in Macedonia where a bunch of guys are now driving Mercedes as a result of putting out fake news. Fair to say, not with an objective of electing Donald Trump, but it was all about getting eyes on Facebook pages and making money. That's right. As it turned out, that putting out fake news that was anti-Hillary was much more profitable than fake news attacking Donald Trump. Um, for some reason, uh, the conservatives like to click on that stuff more. Michael Smirconish. Okay, Th- third, third example of what went on relative to Facebook in 2016. Cambridge Analytica. Remind everybody what that is. It began with a happiness quiz. That's right. So uh, Cambridge Analytica, to remind everyone, is a company that's uh, in, in Britain which uh, had a, a U.S. branch funded by ultra-right-wing financier Robert Mercer, and they wound up getting hold of the personal information of 87 million Facebook users, 87 million profiles. And it all came from a survey from a Cambridge University researcher who got it, the information following Facebook's rules. And I actually figured out that Cambridge Analytica started in 2010 when Facebook decided to give away all that information to the people who wrote programs that ran on top of Facebook, software developers, uh, because they wanted to create a social operating system. So uh, when you signed up for an app on Spotify or something like that that ran on Facebook, you would click and say, okay, uh, I'll share my information with you, but you're also sharing the information of your friends. Every Facebook user has an average of 130 friends. So it doesn't take a lot of people, um, you know, a couple hundred thousand, to get a database of 87 million people. And then this researcher licensed it, and he did violate Facebook's terms of service to do this, licensed it to this company, Cambridge Analytica, which used it in his campaign uh, uh, to elect Donald Trump. Again, an instance where Facebook was very slow to react. That's right. Uh, now, Facebook knew about, well, certainly they, they, they knew about how much information they were giving away. They actually closed this uh, you know, uh, giveaway in 2014, but there was a loophole that they were allowed to continue for another year, and that was during that year that the information went to Cambridge Analytica. So they didn't act fast enough. But j- just to illustrate, it would be as if I were able to get this room full of people in Philadelphia here right now to consent to the happiness quiz, right. and they would take it, and they would give consent, and they would answer questions. But now, by virtue of their having done so, I'm getting access to them and their friends. And it, you know what it reminds That's me right. of? That's right. We'd get hundreds of thousands of profiles if we just got your information for the people It reminds me. It rem- and, you, and the people you, you know, you'd be dropping a dime on your friends, giving me their, their information, and they'd never know it. 
It reminds me, I'm going to date myself with this, of a commercial. I think it was shampoo, a subject I don't know a great deal about. <laughs> but it was a commercial that said, and she told two people, and she told two people, and she... T and then all of a sudden, there's like this grid. Anybody remember? And there are a lot of female faces suddenly on the screen about the growth exponentially. And that's the way this worked up until 87 million individuals' information was then there to be picked apart, again, for political purpose. Right. And, and to be fair, no one really knows how much that information was used by Cambridge Analytica. There's a big debate about whether the Trump campaign actually used those exact profiles. But I think just the idea that if that information you know, was used at all, it, it, it could be so effective in targeting ads to people. Okay, so I, I've very quickly, this is the Cliff Notes edition, okay. but I've run through the legitimate way in which Facebook was used by the Trump campaign in 2016. Then I've talked about the Russian manipulation via DC leaks. I've talked about fake news. I've also talked about Cambridge Analytica. What I most want to know from Stephen Levy is, how prepared is Facebook to police the 2020 campaign? So Facebook is under tremendous pressure uh, to uh, close these uh, uh, loopholes and, you know, uh, not let 2016 happen again. Uh, so they put a lot of measures into effect. Um, they had a little more success in subsequent elections, like the midterms, French election, Mexican election. But uh, in 2020, the people who abuse the platform then are going to be trying new things. So Facebook fought 2016's war and fixed it, and it's unclear whether they're going to be able to adapt to new attacks from the adversaries. Having read the book and tried to understand some of these privacy issues uh, and the regulation issues, it occurs to me just how gargantuan a task it is to moderate content. Right. And you, in the book, talk about this effort, and you had this really interesting experience of going to Phoenix. Yeah. What, what went on? I know they, they closed that, but right. what went on in Phoenix? Please describe that. So Facebook has tens of thousands of people who actually aren't technically Facebook employees. That Facebook hires companies to hire them to sit in, you know, before a screen all day and look at content which is reported either by people who are offended by it or, you know, just blown away by how, you know, awful it was. And it's artificial intelligence which flagged it. And to say, according to Facebook rules, should this go up? Should this go down? Um, they got like 40 seconds to make a decision. And, you know, they go through thousands of uh, pieces of content a day, um, and it's, it's almost like a war zone. You sit there with the stuff coming at you there. And I think in, in that and in a lot of things that we're talking about here, it came about because Facebook grew and, you know, and growth was a big intention. It was something that Mark really wanted to do, you know, uh, grow according to his motto, move fast and break, break things. things. Right. And the growth came so quickly, and they rushed ahead so much that they didn't account for the consequences of this growth. And one of them would be to have billions of pieces of content that you have to look at in order to see what is going to make Facebook unsafe, you know, and, and what's going to threaten the users, what's going to be hateful speech, which is going to bully people, um, terrorist content, which actually Facebook got pretty good at uh, using AI. But, you know, uh, but it, it's a task that will never be perfect at, 
and there's always going to be a lot of stuff which is disturbing well, on Facebook. It's, it reminds me of Potter Stewart famously saying about pornography, I know it when I see it. Some of these things are so very hard to define. There's a whole discussion in your book about men are scum. Yeah. And why men are scum needs to come down, even though you would think, well, okay, offensive, but you're not going to take that down. But you have to take it down when you start formulaically thinking about what right. should and should not be posted. One last thing. Yeah. I, I, could, I could do this for hours with you because I'm t so totally taken with the subject matter. But people here and who are listening and who will watch need to know. So you go through all this with Mark Zuckerberg. You, you address the very heady privacy implications. And he says to you, we were too idealistic and optimistic about the ways people would use technology for good and didn't think enough about the ways that people would abuse it but he believes that their conduct was not due to complacency or greed. Did you find him convincing? Well, um, I, I believe that uh, it wasn't you know, greed in the fact that he wouldn't accumulate money, but it was greed and he wouldn't accumulate users. Right. And, and, and it wasn't like that he didn't know because, you know, I document multiple times before Facebook would do X or Y, people around Mark, his, his top lieutenants in some cases, would say, Mark, um, this isn't a good idea. Or sometimes, Mark, this is wrong. And he would say, we'll do it anyway. Um, his view was that if you go ahead and do it, uh, you could fix things later. You could apologize later. Uh, so uh, he wanted to move fast even if it broke things. Book Club with Michael Smirconish. New episodes drop Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen to the Michael Smirconish program weekdays on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124 and anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.